Tonight, we're, we're jumping into the narrative surrounding the seventh plague. We left off kind of in the middle of that last week as we talked about Pharaoh um, uh, really opposing God and what it's like to be in a place of divine opposition. And we talked about how that's not a good place to be at all, right? Um, but uh, uh, as expected, Pharaoh is going to start pleading with Moses for relief from this plague of hail and this plague of destruction that has come upon the land. Um, but this time, the negotiation with Moses is going to be a little different. Um, and, and you've probably caught on by now. Um, Pharaoh is the boy who cries wolf, right? He continually um, uh, pleads for mercy, right? When the plague gets too intense, uh, when livestock die, and when this and that's happening, the frogs and the lice and the, the, uh, all the different things that were happening, uh, Pharaoh begins to call on Moses and he pleads for mercy. And then he says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll let you go. I'll let y'all go wherever you want to go. Just get this plague away from me, right? Um, and of course, God. God always brings an end to the plague, um, and Pharaoh um, always walks back on his promise, right? Um, the plague comes. He says, please help me. I'll do whatever you want. He does, uh, God relents, and Pharaoh lies. And that's kind of the cycle that we've seen. And I'm sure at some point in the story, uh, maybe you've thought, why does God continually let him off the hook? right? Why is God, you know, God knows he's going to lie. God knows he's not going to cooperate. Um, but it's been back and forth between God um, and, and Pharaoh. God sends a plague. He warns of much worse. And Pharaoh begs for mercy. And yet God gives it, even though Pharaoh doesn't deserve it. Of course, we all can see ourselves in that episode of, as we all have begged for mercy and received it far more than what we could ever deserve. But we've seen this play out so many times now. God warns of judgment, yet he continues to show mercy. Pharaoh's defiant heart is hardened over and over more and more. And this is always the case when we take for granted God's mercy and God's grace, right? That when we, uh, when we ask for mercy yet we don't respond to mercy. When we ask for, uh, when we plea for things to improve or things to get better or for things to, to uh, for, the, for the pain that we're going through to, to, to cease, but we take for granted God's mercy and God's grace. When we waste grace, we disgrace God and we corrupt our hearts. And that's what's happening to Pharaoh. He continues to pray for mercy and he receives it, yet he wastes it. And that's why every one of these stories ends with Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And it's almost like he's crossing a line and every step he takes across that line, it's as if there's no going back. Now earlier on in the story when Moses encounters God, God tells Moses to take his shoes off. Remember that? Uh, way back at Mount Sinai, that first time that he, he, he traveled there. Um, God says, take your shoes off because you're standing on... Holy ground, right? And, and I hope that that might have. I hope that you remember that um, throughout this story because I think that set the tone for this story, um, and it really sets the tone for all of our stories. And it should not be lost on any of us, especially as believers, that we stand on holy ground in every season at all times. Do you realize that that we in Moses was standing on? Sand, right? He had been on that sand for 40 years, right? Nothing, nothing holy about it, right? But God was, was, was tuning Moses in to the real picture, the real, the real uh, scenario that, listen, Moses, you are on holy ground, and I hope from this day forward you realize just how sacred every season, every scenario is. Of course, if not for God's mercy, the whole world would be judged already, wouldn't it? And 
we who recognize His mercy and His grace, we ought to send a signal to the world. And we ought to always be, be sending that signal out that, hey, I'm on holy ground. I don't know about you, and you might not realize it, you might not recognize it, you might not even care. But I am aware that I'm on holy ground right now. And I am not lost. It's not lost on me that God has been good to us and that God's mercy and God's grace has continually met us in our sin. And when we deserve judgment, God gives us mercy. When we deserve judgment, God gives us grace. When we deserve to be cut off, God grafts us on even tighter. And we ought to be letting the world know just how good God has been to us. If only they might open their eyes. If only we might not drift away. And, and, and I think this is kind of just kind of establishing a, a, a tone for our message tonight. God deserves a response. God and His grace demands a response even, right? And, and, and even, as, as we've read about Pharaoh and as we read tonight, Pharaoh continually takes for granted that God's mercy is always going to be there. Maybe you've done that before, right? Maybe you took for granted that your parents or your grandparents or, some, or your boss or somebody that's authority over you, right? You took for granted that they would forgive you. You took for granted that they might would let you off the hook, right? And you continually saw how far you could cross that line or how much you could stretch that limit, right? And, and of course, we all are guilty of that. But isn't it true that God's grace demands a response from us? That it demands that we recognize just how good we have it and it demands that we ought to realize the holy ground that we're on and that we ought to not waste it or not to ought, uh, ought to not take it for granted. And, and the Bible sends a pretty clear message, and we're seeing this play out with Pharaoh, that God is patient, right? God is long-suffering. His mercy is everlasting to an extent. But the Bible tells us early on in the story of, of sinful people God told Noah's generation, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. That I'm not going to continually contend with the people who resist me and who don't respond to me. And ultimately one day there will be, a, there will be an end, right? There will be a time when God says, hey, the age of mercy, the age of grace is coming to an end. And those who are in, are in and those who are out are out. Right? That's the, the message of the New Testament. That's the message of there's a right, there's a left, there's a lost, there's a found. God's Spirit can save and sustain and strengthen any of us, but not if we contend with Him. Right? That if we resist, that if we fight against, if we take for granted whichever you know, uh, adjective, you, whichever uh, uh, place you want to put, find yourself on the, whichever extreme, if we contend with Him, he will not strive with us forever. But this is the nature of our flesh, isn't it? We're going to see it even greater on an even greater display in tonight's text. In, in, in the middle of the seventh plague, in the middle of the hail, in the middle of, of, of this destruction that's coming across the land, in desperation, though defiant as ever, Pharaoh crosses a line with God. Pharaoh contends with God one too many times. And if you recall from our last time, um, if you'll look at verses 13 through 17, God raised the stakes in the intensity of these plagues with the seventh one. So uh, look at verse 13, and this is what the Lord says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and thus and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, 
Or literally, this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart. He's talking to Pharaoh. And on your servants and on your people that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. So God is telling Pharaoh, listen, Pharaoh, if I wanted to, to, to cut you off, I could have. And, and, and one day there will be that, that line that you cross uh, that it'll be too late. If I wanted to cut you off, if I wanted to destroy you, I could. Yeah, I'm using all this to put my own power on display. But he makes a distinction about the seventh plague. In verse 14, he says, this time I, I am sending a plague to your heart or I'm getting to where it really is going to hurt you and the nation. Now, the story goes that God raised the stakes, the intensity of this plague. This plague was a direct attack on Pharaoh's pride and his indifference. This text tells us that Egypt was wrecked by this plague. It wasn't really as much as a plague of hail as it was a plague of storms. And verse 23 details how bad this plague was. Moses stretched out the rod toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire or lightning darted to the ground and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with hail so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt. All that was in the field, both man and beast, the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only the land of Goshen, where the, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So this wrecked the land. Between the lightning and the hail, the land, the livestock, the agriculture was greatly affected. And from the language back in verse 14, Pharaoh knew, and maybe he learned as he pleaded with Moses in the meantime, God wasn't going to fall for his groveling this time. No amount of begging was going to make this plague let up. This time, things were different. Now, I bring emphasis to this time because you'll notice that Pharaoh uses this same phrase, these same two words. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. He uses this phrase that God used in verse 14. He uses it in his response to Moses or his response to God. Look at verse 27. Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned this time. Now notice, that's the same two words that you find back in verse 14. He's mocking God, is what he's doing. God says, this time I am sending a plague to your very heart, Pharaoh. I am taking out your, I'm going to take a shot at your pride and your arrogance and your indifference. If this doesn't get your attention, nothing's going to get your attention. This is going to cost the lives of your people, of your animal, of your, uh, of, of your crops, Pharaoh, this demands a response and in mockery, in defiance, he says, I have sinned this time. He's trying to play Moses. He's trying to play God as if God doesn't know his heart. Now you may say, well, how do we know that Pharaoh isn't being serious? He says in verse 27, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. My people and I are wicked. Now what he's saying is absolutely true, right? God is righteous. He is wicked. But I clearly believe he was only saying this to mock God. Now, if we didn't know who we were dealing with and we didn't know the outcome, let's say, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. 
Let's say this is a genuine confession. Let's say this is an actual admission of guilt. I mean, because if we didn't know the rest of the story and we only read verse 27, that sounds like a pretty clear confession, right? I mean, if you read that in the New Testament, we would assume that that is someone who is genuinely confessing and and, and calling upon God for salvation, right? I mean, he says, I've sinned. The Lord is righteous. I am wicked. We would expect this to be a genuine moment of conversion. But it's not, is it? Look at verse 28. He says, Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thunder and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Now Moses, having the mind that he has, having the insight that he has, verse 28 or 29, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail, that you may know the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Moses said, listen, buddy. You and I both know the God, the, the, the God that we have above us enough that He will be merciful. He will end this plague. But don't for a minute think that we see that we don't see through the lie and see through the defiant and the mockery of that confession. He goes on in verse 30 uh, and th- 31 and 32 to kind of explain how he knows Pharaoh is, is lying. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the, head of, was in the head and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So here's what Moses is saying. He knows that Pharaoh has observed the land enough to know even if God continues to rain down with hail, there's enough crops they can salvage that they're going to be able to make it until God does decide to relent until the next plague. So Pharaoh realizes, hey, there's enough around that we can survive until the next mess happens. So Moses, he sees that Pharaoh is just trying to buy some time. In verse 33, Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. So nonetheless, Moses prays for mercy, even though Pharaoh was not genuine. In verse 34, it makes it clear that Pharaoh was not genuine. And when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder ceased, he sinned yet more. And he hardened his heart. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. He sinned yet again. What was his sin? Not obeying the Lord, not surrendering to the Lord, not giving proper place to God as supreme, but rather remaining opposed to Him, let alone the other sinful activities that he was no doubt involved with. But this reference to sin is a callback to verse number 27 where Pharaoh says... I have sinned this time. Now, Pharaoh seems to acknowledge his sin. He even admits his sin, right? He says, hey, we are wicked. His sin of exalting himself against God, the Hebrew people, his sin of defying the Lord. Here's what I want to camp out around and talk about for the rest of our time. 
Pharaoh acknowledged, admitted, and confessed his sin. Which if you're teaching your children about salvation, these are some of the big trigger words that you use, right? Acknowledge your sin. Confess your sin. Admit your sin. Admit that you're a sinner. Confess your sin, right? Those are things that we expect, that we, you know, you know uh, deal or associate with genuine confession, right? Or genuine conversion. But what Pharaoh did not do, he did not repent of his sin. He admitted it. He acknowledged it. He confessed it. But he was not sorry for it. In fact, he was outright proud of it and ready to commit it again if he needed to as long as he could stay in power. He did not repent of his sin and thus he was bound to repeat his sin. Now I want to talk about this a little bit before we get out of here um, because this is such an important topic for Christians to have and be well versed in. This circles back to what we opened up with, talking about how God's grace demands a response, how we are on holy ground. And and to shrug off God's effort to cleanse us and purify us from sin is not only an insult, but a tragedy. So many of us don't want to talk about this. So many Christians don't want to talk about sin, don't want to talk about repentance, right? Our hearts get a little bit sensitive when we talk about repentance and we talk about the need to acknowledge our sin and turn away from our sin. And many claim it's just a negative subject, right? And, you know, a lot of groups and a lot of churches, a lot of circles, it's just something we don't want to talk about because it just kind of it brings the mood down. It brings the atmosphere down. It kind of brings everybody to a place of negativity and kind of, you know, uh, kind of a depressed state. But listen, and, and this is so important that we've got to get our arms around. Sin and repentance may begin as a negative conversation, but it's a necessary one if we're ever going to reach our true potential in Christ. So I understand that when we talk about our sin and the need to repent of our sin, it's a little bit of a negative conversation, right? It kind of bums you out. It kind of makes you feel bad, right? But I promise you that it's a necessary conversation to have because we're never going to get free to where we need to be if we don't acknowledge that where we're at is not the best. The truth is we all struggle and face different bouts with sin, In the earliest of stories in the Bible, God confronts Cain, who is on the verge of murder. And he says this, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. You must rule over it. You must get this right, Cain, because if you don't, it's going to leave a stain on you forever. As God did with Pharaoh, the, even the acts of judgment can serve as a means of mercy, trying to bring us to this place of surrender. We need to establish and know that it is the grace of God that confronts our sin. It's the kindness of God that delicately and tenderly addresses our sin. God's grace and His kindness is what convicts us. Not His anger. Not His wrath. Now, many claim to know and uh, you know, love God's grace. And many church and, and Christian circles love to talk about the love of God, the grace of God, the kindness of God, which, of course, all those things are praiseworthy and all those things are awesome. But to fail to realize it's the grace of God that also makes us uncomfortable in our sin is missing half the story. The Apostle Paul confronts these kinds of thoughts. 
Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So why is God so kind and so good and so loving to us? Is to show us that, hey, there's a better way. And not leave us in that less than best place. And let it be known that only an act of God can deliver us from sin. Right? That you don't get out of sin on your own because truth be told, you don't want to get out of sin. Nobody wants to get out of sin in and of themselves. We want to make excuses. We want to get comfortable. Even if it's killing us, we in our flesh will not leave sin behind. We all know that. Personally, don't we? But the Bible says that the Apostle Paul instructs ministers to be gentle with opponents, to preach the truth, turning them over to a God and the God who, can on, who only can help them. And here's what Paul said to Timothy. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, but only if God gives them the grace to get free. That what that verse is telling us that it's the grace of God that grants repentance that we can't do it on our own. And if not for God starting the conversation, if not for God activating that grace within us, we will not get free. So you can imagine, can you imagine Pharaoh as God confronts him well beyond mercy's limits? Pharaoh is boldly and brashly admitting his sin, yet he has no true intention of letting it go. What a dangerous place to be, right? What a dumb place to be. Which begs the question, how often does this happen to us? How often are we in a place where we know we are not in the right And we know the Bible says this, but we aren't going to do that. How often do we know what we should be doing, but we don't do it? And what does the Bible say to that person? That is sin. We know what becomes of Pharaoh, don't we? The same will happen to us if we foolishly and recklessly defy God's grace and cling to our sin. So I leave you or I... Leave this with you. If God is dealing with you about sin, there are only two options, really. Repent or repeat. You say, well, you mean if I don't repent, then I'm, that God's going to force me to keep doing it? No, God does not want you to do anything right? that's going to hurt you. But God isn't the one that destines you to repeat anything. But in a sense, when we say no to God, when God is competing for your soul... Right? When God is trying to save you and release you from the enemy, when you say no to God, you know what you're doing? You're saying to the enemy, I give you control. When we say no to God's mercy, we're saying to the enemy, yes. When we say no to God's conviction, we are numbing our sensitivity to truth. And of course, nobody says no to God with also the intention of saying yes to the devil. Nobody says no to God and at the same time says, well, I'm going to obey my flesh. That's just how it works, right? We think we control our own ability to sin or not sin, but that's not the case. We don't control sin. Sin controls us unless we surrender to God who can save us. When we say no to God's conviction, when we deny God's grace, we give an even greater place 
Because it's already got a great place. But when we say no and deny God's grace, we give an even greater seat at the table to sin. God's grace wants to do more than just get us to admit or acknowledge our sin. God's grace wants us to repent of our sin. What is repentance though? And why is that such an important word when it comes to Christianity? Repentance is not just a decision that we make. It's deliverance that God brings. That might be the most important distinction that you learn tonight. Repentance is not a decision that you make. It's a deliverance that God initiates and works out through us. This is very important because we've seen it It's something God brings about. It's something that God works out. The prophet Ezekiel said very famously, very important verse to memorize, Ezekiel 18, verse 30, Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. So sin will be our ruin. God is trying to rescue us and save us from this ruin that can come and in all degrees of severity. Repentance is for everybody. Because we all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all suffer the effects of being against God by nature. And of course, Jesus began His very ministry with this call to repent. Matthew chapter 4 records Jesus on His opening day. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it's close. So notice what Jesus is trying to say here. He is preaching repentance as a means of preparation. Turning from the world and turning towards heaven. Here's what Jesus is trying to get us to do. This is not about what you're doing. It's where you're looking. right? It's not about an act or a individual thing you're doing wrong it's about how we're thinking how we're focusing our what is our determining what is determining our steps what's ordering our steps the idea is that we should unplug from one source and plug into another to turn from the world and turn towards heaven repentance is a greek word a greek word the greek uh, word metanoia which literally means to turn inwardly to change your mind. So maybe you thought repentance was to change things that you do, to change your behavior. Repentance is not about changing behavior. It's about changing your mind, changing your beliefs even. And repentance, the conversation about repentance begins with our beliefs before it confronts our behavior. So when Jesus is saying repent, The kingdom of heaven's here. He's saying, listen guys, I'm opening a door to heaven, but you've got to turn away from the world and look toward me so that I might can order and rightly align your beliefs because if I don't get your beliefs, I'm not going to get your behavior. Now think about this. The Ten Commandments. How many of them are about behavior? Six, right? Obey your parents. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't covet. Uh, What did I miss? Don't steal. Right? That's six. That's the last six commandments. But the first four are not about your behavior. They're about our beliefs, right? The first four are about where our faith is. About how we or who we worship. About where or who we rest in, right? 
The, the, the first four commandments are all about our faith, our worship, and our rest. It's about the condition or the posture of our hearts. So when you think about sin, this, the conversation about sin does not begin with behavior. It begins with belief. It begins with the condition of your heart. Jesus, in a conversation with the Pharisees, said this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil. The conversation with sin begins with where are you putting your faith? What are you worshiping? Where and wherein are you resting? Because if your faith is in the wrong place, if you're worshiping the wrong thing, if you're resting in the wrong stuff, guess what? Your behavior is going to be far from God. But your behavior in and of itself is not the problem. It's just a symptom of the heart being out of line. What will determine your steps, what will determine your behavior, what will determine your decision is where your heart is. This is why repentance is something God initiates because guess who has access to your heart? Only God. He knows your motive. He knows your fears. He knows where you rest and why you can't find any rest. He knows what you worry about. He knows what you do to try to cover up that anxiety, right? He knows what drives you to do this and do that. He knows where your faith is. He knows where your rest is. Without God initiating this conversation, we're trapped in a mind of unbelief. If Jesus hadn't come on the scene preaching repent, nobody would have thought about it. If we have not heard God's Word and been under God's Word, our flesh is not going to lead us to a place of repentance. So repentance is something God starts. He begins this conversation. Repentance begins with Conviction. Conviction, you could almost call it divine tension. Conviction is what happens when you get a glimpse of what's better, yet our flesh is grieved because it doesn't want to lose its grip. That's why you get convicted. Because God shows you what you can be, and who you can be, and how you can live, and your flesh says, whoa, no, 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 no. Don't look at that, right? Don't get a glimpse of that. Don't get your heart on that, because I want to keep you like you are, Right? You know, we, you know why we get so convicted about conversations about, I don't know, money? You know why we get so convicted about conversations about sexuality and sex and, and morals? You know why we get so convicted whenever we get, when the conversation goes about our worries? Because our flesh has control of us when it comes to those areas, doesn't it? And it doesn't want us to get a glimpse of the real thing, of the right way, of the better way. And when it does, we get a little convicted, right? And our response is to flee to the darkness where it's safe and where we aren't convicted. It's divine tension. The friction and tension shows us the end of our sin. And when we experience, that we will experience greater grief from the offenses that we are committing to ourselves, to others, and to God. And when we get enough of a glimpse of where God wants us to be, and we realize where we're going, conviction will lead to contrition. That's the second part of repentance. Conviction leads to contrition, which contrition is sorrow. Contrition is, 
I don't want to be this way anymore. I see what sin is doing to me, and I want out. Contrition is, 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 is that sense of apology. That sense of, I'm sorry. Because I see what I'm doing to my loved ones. I see what I'm doing to myself. I see what my sin did to Jesus. The repentance is triggered by God's conviction and the sense of contrition that comes when we realize the nature of our sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, a very famous couple verses, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved or convicted into repenting. That Paul said, I'm not glad that you guys are upset, but I am glad that this grief led you to a place of contrition, to a place of repenting. And he qualifies it in this next verse. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is you got caught, right? And you don't want to pay the consequences, so you do whatever you got to do to avoid the consequences, but you have no intentions of changing. Worldly grief is Pharaoh saying, whoa, 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 please defer this plague from my people. Please, whatever i got to say to get out of it, I'll do it. But I have no intention of letting this go because I'm not really sorry. But true repentance leads to conviction, leads to contrition. And that's the only thing that will lead to Change. Change is the final step and the continual phase. So you get that? Repentance doesn't have an end. Yes, change is the final step, but that final step is a continual, ongoing phase. Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed or the contrite spirit. So, God will always be near and with those who understand their propensity for sin and those who cling to the Lord for help always. The Spirit of God dwells with us and works through us to steer us away from sin and empower us with grace. Jesus said the Holy Spirit has come for this purpose. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will guide you. So you know what that means? The Spirit of God shows you what is right and what is wrong. And it gives you the ability to make the decisions, the right judgment as to what is right and what is wrong. So He says, hey, this is sin. This is righteous. You should have the best judgment and you should follow My guidance. Sounds easy, doesn't it? And it is possible if we trust the Lord. He will reveal what's wrong. He'll reveal what's right. He makes a distinction between. He'll help us make the right decisions and make us aware of the consequences for making wrong decisions. To wrap this back around, of course, we know that Pharaoh never repented. He continually repeated the same sin and he was buried in the Red Sea because of it. If God is dealing with you about a wrong belief, about a wrong behavior, a wrong goal, don't wait. Don't hesitate. Don't simply give place to God as being right. Surrender to God so that He can make you right. God is not just in this business of gloating over us. 
Like God does not just want to be right. If He wanted to be right, He'd have the angels tell Him that. He wants to help us. God does not need us saying, well, you're right, God. You're right. I'm wrong. Listen, admission isn't enough. God knows He's right. Right? He knows He's right. He doesn't need us to say, well, yeah, you're right, I'm wrong, God. You know. Repentance is a must. God wants, to, God wants us to be right with Him. And He wants us to be righteous through Him. So if God confronts you, it's because He loves you. It's because He loves you so much. And He wants you to put your faith. He wants you to rest in Him. He wants you to worship Him because He knows that will direct you in the right direction. That will step turn you in the right way. That will prepare you for what's best. So if God's dealing with your heart, you got two options. Keep doing what you're doing or repent. Conviction is never a bad thing. It's the beginning of the best thing that could ever happen to you. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your conviction. Thank you that you don't let us remain with wrong beliefs, with wrong worldviews, with wrong mindsets, because those wrong beliefs and those wrong mindsets lead us to making wrong decisions that hurt us and hurt others and are an affront to you. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you confront us in our sin. You convict us. And God, I pray that we would allow that conviction to bring us to a place of contrition, to a place of sorrow, a place of grief, a place of surrender. Because that's where change is made possible. Father, if somebody here tonight would admit that they've got some things in their life that are just not what they should be, and they know you're convicting them, and they know that you've, you've confronted them, Father, I pray they would admit that you're right. But I pray more than that, that they would start to trust in you, and they would start to put their faith in you, and they would start to let go of what their sin and grab a hold and cling to you. Father, I pray that you'd bring about that change in their life that you promise and guarantee that you will, and that only you can. Father, we know that you are right, and I'm glad that you don't just want to be right, but you want to make us right, and you want to make us righteous through Christ. Father, we pray that that can be possible for everyone tonight, and we trust that you'll make this realized in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.